the idea that we could actually uh, contribute to making better space societies of the future um, is a really exciting one to me. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Ryan Watkins. Agatha Christie once wrote, Archaeologists only look at what lies beneath their feet. The sky and the heavens don't exist for them. Today we are visited by Dr. Alice Gorman of Flinders University in South Australia, and she is proving Agatha Christie wrong. In this episode, Alice shares stories from her archaeological research that explores the meaning of artifacts left on the moon during the Apollo missions. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here's Alice Gorman. So my name is Alice Gorman. I was born in the southern part of New South Wales in a country region and grew up on a farm. Um, My first degree was a Bachelor of Arts at the University of Melbourne, in which I focused on archaeology. But I also did astronomy. And at a certain point, and I actually cannot remember how old I was, I decided I was going to do a PhD And I did this at the University of New England, which is in northern New South Wales. And following that, I was a a broke student who needed a job desperately. So I started working as a heritage consultant in Queensland, quite a distance from where I grew up. And it was in the course of this work that I had an inspiration about doing an archaeology of things in space one day. And I resigned from the job I had and tried to work my way back into academia, uh, ending up at Flinders University, where I currently have um, a tenured position. We spoke with Alice on the exact anniversary of Voyager 1's launch 40 years prior. She talked with us about what it is that she thinks makes the spacecraft such a lasting cultural icon. There's really so many things that Voyager, both Voyagers hit in terms of space missions and spacecraft that just speak to people in different ways. I think they're quite extraordinary in that regard. So the aspects of the story, I think, that really resonate with people, I mean, the really obvious one is the Golden Records, which have 116 photographs, greetings in languages from across the globe, and of course, the 90 minutes of music. So people really engage with the records. I mean, first of all, they're golden. So there's something kind of it's a bit like the Mask of Agamemnon or um, Celtic gold talks. There's there's sort of an air of of a, a, a treasure and the idea that they're a time capsule. So so in a sense they're they're a very archaeological sort of analog. They're a, they're like a time capsule buried deep in the earth, except these ones are buried far out in space. So there's something about the golden record that people really relate to quite independently of its content. I think people also relate just to that isolation and loneliness and being far away and 
having all of their systems gradually shut down until one day they fall silent. It's kind of like the spacecraft has uh, a life cycle or a life that we can relate to. So as objects that people imbue with meanings, they're among the most powerful that we have in the solar system. And you could argue that um, they're now, they're like a, they're like a talisman against our own mortality. The fact that they will pass beyond the regions where we can communicate with them, they will become silent and they will just head out towards the stars and we will have no idea where they are or how they're faring. They're in some sense, they're immortal and they might outlast, you know, life on this planet for all we know. So they're like... They protect us. Their immortality is something that um, reflects our own mortality back to us. For her foundational work in establishing the field of space archaeology, Alice is known as Dr. Space Junk. But what just is space archaeology? Alice explains. Well, the way I and my colleagues use the term to mean, it's looking at the material culture of space exploration. It's looking at the objects and artifacts and places and landscapes and social meanings and cultures around all of the stuff to do with space exploration after the Second World War. In order to study space exploration in the way that I'm doing, of course, I'm looking at the documentary record and the archives. And of course, I'm also talking to people and listening to people who were involved in the space industry, like in the past or in the present and going to the future. But as an archaeologist, it's that material stuff that I'm really interested in. And the thing that is the key point about that is that documents can misrepresent what happened or they represent a particular version of what happened. The material stuff isn't subject to the same... Um, gaps or the same problems of interpretation and memory. It doesn't mean that the material stuff automatically tells you what it's about. You have to understand it and interpret it and analyse it as well. And what you learn from that can change depending on what questions you ask and depending on your own perspectives or biases. But you can ground truth theories arising from other places against that material culture. And material culture often reveals what people don't, aren't aware that they're doing. Looking at the material stuff can help you work out what people actually did as opposed to their accounts of what they did. And that's where the interesting questions about human behaviour and human engagement with their environment arise. Now having a better sense of what space archaeology is, we were interested in learning what some of the origins of the discipline have been. Uh, so everything actually starts to take off, you could say, around 1999-2000. So Bill Rathjee, who is most famous for his Tucson garbage project, um, wrote a magazine article looking at space junkers archaeology. And sadly, I didn't even know this article existed um, until some years after I started my own research on it. Um, so this is in 1999. Then um, my colleague Beth Laura O'Leary, who's at New Mexico State University, um, maybe a, a year or a couple of years prior to 1999, 
was teaching a class one day and one of her students, Ralph Gibson, um, put his hand up and said, what about places on the moon? You know, are they archaeology? Are they heritage? And this um, set off a process which ended up with Beth getting funding from NASA in 1999 for the Lunar Legacy Project. And she used uh, the um, documentary records to make an inventory of the objects that were left on Tranquility Base when the astronauts left in um, July 1969. So that, you could say, was possibly the first um, true space archaeological project. After hearing from Alice about the origins of the field, more of which is available as bonus clips on parsingscience.org, Doug and I wondered, might the atmospheric and gravitational barriers that prevent everyday people from being able to make it to space contribute to our collective fascination with it? Well, we have a, a real separation of life on Earth in this thin little rind of the right temperature, atmospheric pressure, amount of water, all of those things. And then beyond the barrier of the atmosphere, the end of the atmosphere, this extremely different environment filled with huge amounts of radiation and geomagnetic storms and um, atomic elements, uh, all of these things which don't make life for us very easy. But still, we've got generally six people living up there over our heads every day and have for the last 16 years. And we're connected to space in a whole range of different ways as well. And, we, you know, the voyagers send their little signals back to three tracking stations in the Deep Space Network, including um, the Canberra Deep Space Tracking Station. So we are connected to them. It's a really interesting opposition, I think, because, yes, there are all those things that make space so different and make it feel so far away, even though in actual distance, it's not that far away. 400 kilometres to the International Space Station, that's like driving from Sydney to Brisbane. In fact, it's less than driving from Sydney to Brisbane. But we are connected. We're connected by signals, telecommunications, images. There's a, a whole web of links between us and things in space. We're connected to the places on the moon by the laser beams shot every day to the retro reflector on the Apollo 11 Tranquility site and the Lunacod rovers, and I think there's a couple of others as well. So we are very connected. We just don't feel like it a lot of the time. If archaeology can be carried out on the moon, then there must be quite a few artifacts there to study. So we were curious to know, just what's been left behind on the moon anyway? There are the scientific experiments. There's things like one of my favourites is um, the dust collector experiment that was actually devised by an Australian space scientist, Brian O'Brien. And of course, there's the, the laser retro reflector. Um, so the, and the all-sep experiment package, I think the um, dust collector is actually part of the all-sep experiment package. So these were all set up in the sort of initial um, minutes of uh, the Apollo 11 um, expedition sitting down. You have the television cameras um, and the flags, of course, which are of great interest and um, the source of much discussion. You have the, the landing module itself. 
sort of the most uh, substantial artifact that's left there. Then you have the things that were ditched from inside um, the ascent module um, in order to, to make it light enough to, to go. So there's like seats and armrests and tethers and a whole bunch of stuff that was just chucked out. This is the toss zone that um, Beth Laura O'Leary talks about. There's um, when they were collecting samples, um, they took cores. So I think there's actually some core tubes. They were aluminium tubes that they used to take these cores. So they're there as well. There's um, some of the apparatus for um, collecting dirt and soil. There's also, according to um, the Lunar Legacy Project, there are emesis bags which contain human waste. So I think that's pretty interesting, actually. And as well as all of this material stuff, there's the actual um, collection places. So the places where they dug, there's a bulk sample pit where they had to, they dug out a whole bunch of dust and regolith. And there's the places where the cores were taken from and various other little pits and furrows dug in order to extract um, material to take back to the earth. And we also have um, the footprints and the tracks that they walked around. Whether on the earth or above it, Doug and I were interested to hear what Alice believes is the value of archaeology to society. There's an element of mystery. It's, it's the wanting to know. It's like the mysterious lives of people who could have been so different to us, but also so similar to us, trying to understand how we came to be what we are in the present. So for me, it's impossible to understand who we are in the present without understanding who we are in the past. And the critical thing about that as well is that we can't construct different futures if all we know is the present, if we think our current technologies and social values and kinship structures and gender structures are rooted in deep um, evolutionary prehistory, and I'm going to come quite clear here and say I hate evolutionary psychology passionately because all it does is justify present power inequalities. And this archaeology tells us not only how people were similar, but also how they were different. And if they were different in the past, then our lives can be different in the future. We are not constrained by present culture. Archaeologists have been known to investigate everything from excavated latrines and trash piles to field surveys of ancient structures. So we wondered, what is archaeology's interest in other people's junk? Junk is frequently the only key we have to understanding what was going on in people's minds and what was going on in different societies that lived in worlds so different to ours. It's about imagining other worlds. And okay, we're imagining them through <laughs> discarded and broken things and decaying bodies and bones that have been thrown down rubbish pits and all of those things that get left over. This is why we just want to pry into other people's business and find out what they were thinking. But I think at the end of the day, a lot of archaeologists would say the importance of what we do by picking over other people's garbage is finding ways to represent the voices of those who didn't write the histories. 
and supporting um, reductions of inequality in the world and imagining those into the future. I think a lot of my colleagues would agree with that rationale for archaeology. In her article, Culture on the Moon, Alice makes the case that artifacts left by the Apollo astronauts constitute a culture. But just how do archaeologists go about defining and studying culture? A lot of people, when they think of culture, they think of the arts, the performing arts and visual arts and all of those things, and it certainly encompasses that. But there's a particular archaeological meaning, and that's kind of more focused around um, the material culture. So constructing an idea of culture as a web of interconnected concepts and ideas, the result of which is the artefacts and the buildings and the environments that people create that archaeologists then come to find. One of the classic definitions of, of culture comes from V. Gordon Child, who's a very interesting Australian archaeologist who um, moved to the UK um, for most of his career, working in the early 30s. And, and his definition of culture was a consistently occurring suite of material things. So there's an idea here that a group of people will create a consistent expression of culture that you can see in the material record. So this has been a really powerful idea in archaeology. So one of the things um, that was problematic about using the term culture to work on archaeological sites in the deeper past is that, you know, there's all kinds of critiques of, of you know, you, if you once you associated a suite of material trays with an ethnic group, you often ended up essentializing that group. So, and we know that ethnicity just does not map on to um, material things in the easy way that we'd like it to do. So there's there's ample evidence of this. But the thing with the Apollo staff is we have the documentary record. We have the, the video record. Like we can see it. We know who these people were. So that level of uncertainty that exists uh, for the past or the deeper past doesn't exist here. So we know that Apollo culture, as left on the moon, is created by a set of white American men. So they are a distinct group. And the material stuff they use to adapt to this landscape is similarly created um, in a particular nation, within a particular technological system uh, for use by this you know, very tiny group of men. So it does kind of fit the definition of culture as put forward by child. Alice next talks with us about how Apollo culture can be investigated, as well as what she and her colleagues have found so far about how the culture there worked. So um, Peter Capitolotti's first proposed that there was a distinct Apollo culture in his 2010 book. Capitolotti's basic idea is that Apollo culture on the moon, so we're not talking necessarily about Apollo culture on the Earth, but on the moon, it starts on 21st of July 1968 and it ends in 1972 and the stuff is all still there 
and it forms a coherent suite of material. And compared to a lot of places on Earth where we, we know that culture concept doesn't work as well as you might hope, here it does actually work. So it goes two ways. What would we learn about Apollo culture by calling it a culture? How does investigating Apollo culture reflect back on the way we apply this term on the Earth? And I think this, this for this paper, I wanted to kind of dig deeper into that concept and see where it would take us if we started to consider it as a culture. If we analyse just what they left behind, then my prediction is we would see a progression in which each successive Apollo site is building on the experiences of the previous one and extending their, their sort of territory each time, if you, if you want to say it like that. So in the later missions, they had longer on the surface. They had rovers. They had uh, different um, scientific experiments that obviously were related to what was learned from the prior ones. Given what's been left on the moon, as well as what space archaeologists aim to accomplish, we wanted to know what an example of lunar culture might include. This is an example that um, PJ Capilotti drew attention to in his um, 2010 book. So there's, um, I think it was an image he was referring to, and the a lunar rover has, you know, made a path, or you know, you can see the tire tracks um, in the in the regolith, and the astronauts are walking beside it um, as if it's a road on Earth. So his point is that you don't need to do that. Like, there's no other vehicles coming down that road, so their behaviour is not constrained by the fact that it is a vehicle path, and yet they walk beside it. So they're kind of creating, for them, that's a social meaning. They're imbuing those rover tracks with the social meaning of road. So they're demarcating space into places where you can do some things here and not other things here. Obviously, for each astronaut, it's a unique experience when they come out of their landing module and go onto the surface. But how much is that experience shaped by what they learn and see of the behaviour of the previous astronauts as well. So we're kind of looking at a little, a very short, but little evolutionary trajectory, you know, highly speeded up perhaps, if you like. Due to our separation in time and distance from the artifacts left by the Apollo missions, we were curious to learn what the challenges are of carrying out archeology span of the moon. One of the interesting things is uh, the Outer Space Treaty, which uh, was came into effect in 1967 and governs behaviour in space, um, states that material in space remains the property of the launching state. However, it's impossible to make a territorial claim on space. So what this means, in effect, for archaeological sites on the moon is that the way the objects are considered is different to the way the site is considered. So you have a really interesting situation where the way we look at an archaeological site or a heritage place on Earth, which very much includes the environment or the natural setting, if you want to call it that, um, kind of gets split up when you look at it 
on the moon because you have to consider the artifacts sort of separately in that um, uh, legislative or international regulatory way from their actual environmental setting. So in t in ultimately, in terms of um, heritage management for the uh, lunar Apollo sites, that may become a bit of an issue. Doug and I were interested to hear what the applications of space archaeology are, both to future space exploration as well as future research. I think one of the things that we can learn from this stuff is why sometimes things don't work the way they should. They may be uh, not always um, on Earth sort of fatal, like, you know, something's not working out on Earth, you move to a different place or you try a different strategy. People in space aren't going to have that option. Um, one, of, one of my good friends is um, a candidate for the Mars One program. But things like that, it's like all you need is one tiny um, material or mechanical failure and everybody dies. And it's the kind of failure that on Earth isn't going to be a big deal. If you're not aware of the, the real role an object plays within a society, then you're not going to be aware of the consequences when you don't have it or when it fails. Next, Alice talked with us about the International Space Station Archaeological Project, as well as her work on it. Well, just um, very briefly, um, the International Space Station Project um, was initiated by my colleague Justin Walsh at Chapman University. And uh, the idea that we want to pursue is related to this concept of culture. It's the idea that on the International Space Station um, because uh, astronauts and cosmonauts have to work together in this microgravity environment and they have to work out ways to adapt to it and um, make the affordances um, of the modules and the artifacts that have access to work for them. It effectively creates um, a, a micro-society and we're interested in looking at those interactions with the material culture of the space station. Our ultimate hope is that we will learn something that was not previously known, or many things that were not previously known, about how a society or a culture is created within an enclosed space environment. So our plan is to use the very extensive um, image archive uh, that NASA holds to work out who's doing what, where and with what, and to look for consistent patterns of behaviour. Coming back to that culture idea, there's a lot to do. Drawing on the idea of um, some very successful citizen science projects where um, people are asked to, through a particular online platform, are asked to come in and do some of the work of identifying and cataloguing and analysing um, particular types of data, we're hoping um, that we will be able to get something similar set up um, So, because there's just so much of it and it would be amazing to um, recruit the help of International Space Station enthusiasts out there. Lastly, Doug and I asked Alice about her hopes for the future of space archaeology. Something we're really interested in is how artifacts are not just functional or practical, 
they they actually you know have social meanings as well. For example, you know making people feel that um, an enclosed space habitat is more like a home environment. It might be absolutely vital. So looking at how objects and artifacts sort of travel between these different sort of social, symbolic, functional um, registers is something that's, you know, very much at the heart of what archaeologists do. Uh, so we, we are often trying to work out what's inside people's heads from, you know, a fragment of pottery or a stone tool. So I think these are the kinds of insights that we can bring to future space exploration. This is like, you know, we, we want to know. We, we're still the, the sticky beak archaeologists. We want to know how people work. We want to know how material stuff works. But the idea that we could actually uh, contribute to making better space societies of the future um, is a really exciting one to me. That was Alice Gorman. Her article, Culture on the Moon, Bodies in Time and Space, was published in the April 2016 issue of Archaeologies, the Journal of the World Archaeological Congress. You'll find a link to her paper on parsingscience.org, along with other materials she discussed during the show. Parsing Science now has its own hotline. Whether you have a recommendation for a future guest or a tip for other shows that listeners might enjoy, you can ask Ryan and I to explore it. Just call us toll-free at 1-844-EXPLORE-IT. That's 1-844-XPLORIT. Let us know what's on your mind, and we might feature your voice in a future show. Next time on Parsing Science, we're visited by Drs. Brian Nosek and Tim Arrington from the Center for Open Science. They'll discuss open science and the importance of replication studies to scientific progress. And I'm thinking, wait a second, we've known about this for 30 years, and what have we done about it? We hope that you will join us again 